Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. It's a great privilege to be here. My name is Bobby, and as Pastor Frank mentioned, I am part of the worship ministry here at Harvest. Uh, Renee and I, our family, have been part of Harvest for about eight years now, and I, again, have the privilege of bringing you God's Word today. So before we do that, can we pray? Father, I pray that you would remind all of us that this time is not uh, entertainment. This time is not meant just for us to sit back and consume information. But Lord, as we open your word, which you, out of your grace and mercy, reveal to us, you want to speak. And so, Lord, I just ask today, right now, you would help me to simply get out of the way and, and preach very clearly and faithfully what your text says. We ask that you would open our ears and hearts and so that our lives would be transformed, so that we could see you for who you are, see what your son Jesus has done, and live for you. Thank you in Jesus' name. We're in the midst of a series, if you are new or visiting Harvest, where we look at each component of a Sunday worship service. So we're looking at each component of the Sunday worship service, and we're asking ourselves what that component is about and trying to understand it more so we can engage more fully in Sunday worship. Ultimately, we don't want to tune out any part of Sunday worship. We want to be really engaged during that time. And so we call it a Sunday worship service, right? You can nod, it's okay. It's a Sunday worship service, so every single part is worship. We worship God by singing songs. We worship God by giving. We worship God by listening to God's word. And we worship God by responding. And so today, we'll look at the part of the Sunday worship called worship, where we sing songs to and about God. So let me just clarify, when I say worship, I mean glorifying God with our voices and our hearts. It's something that's done when we get together as a group like this. Wayne Grudem, who's a professor and author, says this and says it succinctly. Worship is the music and words that Christians direct to God in praise together with the heart attitudes that accompany that praise, especially when Christians assemble together. So let me begin, as we start this passage, by taking you to two passages in the Bible. You don't have to flip to these passages necessarily, but if you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you. A few weeks ago, we read out of Exodus 3. We read where God chose a man named Moses to rescue the Israelites from the Egyptians. The Egyptians had captured the Israelites. They'd been in captivity for 400 years, and the people were crying out to God, save us, help us. And so God responds by inviting a man, Moses, to uh, take charge to rescue the people. So God meets with Moses. Anyone remember this sermon? How, anyone here? Yeah. So God meets with Moses, and he says, I'm charging you to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So what's interesting, though, is when God says, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, what does God say? Let my people go so that they can worship me. They don't, he doesn't say, let my people go so that you know that I'm the boss. He doesn't say, let my people go because you're bothering them. He says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Now I want to fast forward. I want to fast forward to Matthew 4, 9 
We're told of the time when Jesus, the Son of God, is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. In the third temptation, Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Satan says this, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he says, I will give you all these things if you will bow down and worship me. These two passages are stunning. Because in these two passages, you have God and Satan revealing what they want from men. Worship. And if this is what they want... It's important to realize what we're doing when we gather together for worship. So we're going to look at Revelation 5. So I invite you to take out your Bibles or take out whatever you have. And we're looking at Revelation 5, but I'm actually going to start reading from Revelation 4 because it gives us some background and context. Revelation 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face of a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Revelation 5. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. 
Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That is an overwhelming passage. There are parts of that passage that are just downright confusing. There are parts of that passage that are captivating. And so what I'd like to do in light of that is just start with a little bit of background. For me to stand up here and to try to preach Revelation chapter 5 in about 40 minutes is just an impossible task. It's just not going to happen. When we are done, I promise you, okay, I'm making this promise, that you are going to leave with questions unanswered. There are so many questions you can ask. Why does he have seven horns? Why does he have eyes? Who are the four living creatures? Why does one have an eagle's face? There are so many things you can ask. It's really easy to get caught up in the imagery of Revelation and try to figure out what each of the symbols means. Our son Micah has an illustrated Bible. And one day I just randomly asked him, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And he said, Revelation. And I thought, that's so confusing. Why does he think Revelation is the coolest book? And then I realized he has an illustrated Bible. And when Micah opens up Revelation and sees dragons and characters with 666 written on their forehead, he thinks it's the coolest book ever. I can just imagine him at, at, at school saying, yeah, you, you know, we go to church and we love this guy named Jesus, but let me tell you about Revelation, man. Uh, yes, there are visions of creatures and angels and God the creator and dragons and on and on. Revelation is a book about end times. Yes, Revelation is a book about judgment. Yes, Revelation is a book about how God is going to take all the injustice that has ever happened and make it right. However, we can't overlook the fact that Revelation is a book about worship. In chapter 4, verse 8, if you have it with you, or if you're looking at a Bible, if you look at chapter 4, verse 8, and if you just start scrolling through You'll see these little indented sections in Revelation. Chapter 4, verse 8, begins the first of 15 songs or hymns that are sung about God the Father or Jesus the Son. You find the word worship more often in Revelation than any other book in the Bible. Depending on which translation you use, it will be in the top three in terms of its use of the word worship. In Revelation, the use of our voices and hearts to glorify someone is either given to one of two beings. It's either given to the God of the Bible and his son Jesus, or it's given to Satan. The message of Revelation is stark for you and I sitting here. Everyone is a worshiper. Every single person is a worshiper. There's a lot of imagery, there's a lot of things that are unclear, there's a lot of things that are debatable, but one thing that is not debatable is that everyone is going to worship one of these two beings. No one is on the sidelines. The book makes us in the church feel a little bit uncomfortable. Because imagine going to one of your friends or co-workers and saying, in the end, you're going to worship God? And Jesus, or you're going to worship Satan. That's what it comes down to. We just go, can it be a little bit more palatable? The book of Revelation says no. When the dust settles, it's ultimately God who receives worship forever and ever. The other thing I want to say about this passage is that Revelation in this passage, it's not a prescription for worship. It's, it's just a description of what happens in the throne room. So today, when you leave, I will not tell you whether God prefers hymns or Christian contemporary music. 
Okay? This passage will not say, here are the five ways to worship God. It's merely a description, not a prescription for worship. So there are two descriptions that, are, that will fuel our worship and that I'm going to jump into. Number one, God on the throne. And number two, Jesus, the only one who's worthy. So our first point is this. God is on the throne. I'm reading out of an ESV, so if you have your Bible, uh, and if you have a different translation, just bear with me. I want you to look at Revelation 4, 2. Revelation 4, 2. Look at what it says. It says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. One of the first descriptions of God on the throne is that he is what? Okay, I'm a teacher. You have to participate. Uh, one of the descriptions of God on the throne is that he is what? Seated. Look at Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was what? Seated on the throne. God is seated. The picture is one of absolute control. This is the end of the world that we're talking about, right? Satan is about to wreak havoc. People are about to choose sides. And where is God? He's seated. He's not pacing. He's not planning. This is not like a, you know, a, a corporate war room, if you're familiar with those at work, where things are going, Calvin's shaking his head, oh my gosh. Uh, at a corporate war room when papers are flying and there's debriefing sessions happening back and forth, this is not that. God is seated. The same image of God is given in Isaiah 6, and Pofo just talked about that, Ezekiel 2 and Daniel 7. It says, when, when Isaiah's world was falling apart, in the year that King Uzziah died, political turmoil, social turmoil, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne. Ezekiel 126. Ezekiel had been in exile to Babylon. And he says, I saw above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire and seated above that likeness of a throne was a likeness with human appearance. In the midst of the craziness and insanity of life, these prophets, in the last one, Daniel, in the midst of exile himself, and serving a false kingdom. And I, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. I want us to remember, as we think about God on the throne, he's seated. And today when we come and gather for worship, we worship him because he's seated. He's in total control. I want you to think about the headlines that cause you or your friends or your co-workers turmoil. What, cause you, what causes you to feel unrest? I know at our work, uh, a lot of the uh, water cooler talk has been about Ebola, spread of Ebola. Is it coming here? Well, why is that nurse just running around on her bicycle? And people start to feel Nervous, worried. Um, as you've seen over the, the past few weeks, as ISIS rolls into town after town, and it just seems like there's a new video being released of this beheading, and it just seems like, what is going on there? Can't someone get this under control? And what do we see? God is seated in the midst of all of this. Forget those world headlines. I want you to think about your own house. Maybe you're out of a job for two or three months. Maybe someone in your family has passed away. Maybe your kids are not listening. Maybe your marriage is falling apart. And in the midst of all of that turmoil, one of the things you can do as you pray is remember God, you are seated. The testimony of Revelation is that God is in control. Evil will be judged for what it is. Injustice won't go unpunished. There will be a day 
with no tears, no sorrow. Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is the one who's totally in control. The second description of God on the throne is that he is receiving worship. If you can, grab your Bibles again and just look at Revelation chapter 4, verses 8. Look at what's being said of him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Go down a little bit further to verse 11. Worthy are you, Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were existed and they were and were created. God is worshipped because he's holy. God is receiving worship because he's all-powerful. God is being worshipped because he's eternal. In verse 11, he's worshipped because he's the creator. All of these titles emphasize the fact that God on the throne is God. God is God. He is the most worthy object of worship. Wayne Grudem, who I referenced before, says this, We should rejoice that it is right that God seek his own honor and be jealous for his own honor, for he, infinitely more than anything he has made, is worthy of honor and worship. So we could sit here and spend an hour just describing each attribute of God or each title of God, but there's two titles that I just want to to zoom in on and hone in on. One of those titles is that he is worshipped for being holy, right? If you look at the text, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, is, and is to come. Think of what could have been said. Loving, loving, loving is the Lord God Almighty. Faithful, faithful, faithful is the Lord God Almighty. But these living creatures say one phrase over and over and over. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. To say something three times in the Bible is the strongest declarative sentence you can say. It's like bolding, highlighting, underlining, exclamation points over and over and over. So if that's what they're saying, holy. Holy, holy, then is our posture when we come here and we stand one of reverence and awe? I'm just, wait, wait, wait. I'm not just gathering into a cafeteria. I'm not just singing, I like that song, but you know what? That one, that, that bridge just really, I, I can't stand it. No, 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 no. We're here worshiping. A God who is holy, and so we have reverence and awe. Another attribute of God that I want to uh, highlight is that he is worshipped for being the creator. Look at the text where it says in uh, verse 11, the second part of that, For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. I don't know when for you, the fact that God is a creator, it really kind of jumps out at you. Perhaps for some of you, when you held your own child for the first time in your hands, and you realized God created this baby. I mean, just the intricacy of life. And you realize God is a creator. Or maybe for you, it was on vacation recently, seeing something in in nature that was just so majestic and awe-inspiring that you just wanted to shout or sing or just say, God is the creator of all of this. For me, it's been the universe recently. So Stephen Hawking, who is a world-renowned physicist, he's uh, his title, his technical title is the Lucasian Professor of Mathematics at Cambridge University in England. He's one of the most brilliant physicists in the world. Besides being a physicist and telling us about the nature of time and how the universe came about, he writes children's books 
with his daughter, Lucy. So we were on a recent road trip, and so uh, we were in the audiobook section of uh, one, one of the library, and I saw a, uh, a, a space story. It's a space adventure, George's space adventure, written by Stephen Hawking. I thought, what? So I had to get it because, you know, we were going on this road trip. So we're listening to this story, and it was for the kids, but I was blown away. So Lucy, his daughter, does most of the storytelling, but you can see when uh, Hawking adds in his information. There's one line in the story where the, the main character says this, Did you know that there are a million, million stars in the Milky Way galaxy? And I actually rewound that, and I said, there's a million, million stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Okay, that's actually, so I Googled that. <laughs> that actually was a hundred billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So I had to go find a picture of the Milky Way because, you know, we can zoom outside of the Milky Way and someone can take, just kidding. <laughs> this is just an author's rendition of based on science, what the Milky Way looks like. This is the Milky Way galaxy. And look at that red arrow. We are there. That's where the sun is. How many, how many miles are we away from our sun? Yeah, a lot, yeah. 93 million miles away from our sun, right? So that little speck represents 93 million miles, that little arrow there, and that rest of, that's the Milky Way galaxy. And we believe that a God, our God, a God who is personal, created this. But wait, it gets even more mind-blowing in George's space adventures. They said that there are 100 billion galaxies in the known universe. So scientists believe that there are 100 billion galaxies in the known universe. Are you wrapping your mind around this? This is one galaxy, okay? There are 100 billion of these, and we exist on this little rock. If you go to the Institutes of Physics, which you can find at physics.org, they say that to put this in perspective, because it's so mind-blowing, is that they say if you hold up one grain of sand, if you hold up one grain of sand to the night sky, the patch that it covers covers 10,000 galaxies. That's how deep space is. Some of you are just furrowing your brows at me right now. We believe God created all this. It makes me say this in Psalm 8.3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. When we recognize God is God, he is holy. He is our creator. We always recognize that we are not. There's always going to be an aspect of God that we will just never understand. I think there's a good place for us to ask questions and know what our faith is and, and the, the, the power of our faith and logic, and all of these things. But at a certain point, we have to say, as the author in Ecclesiastes does, we have to check our pride and say, God is in heaven, here am I on earth, so I'll let my words be few. Today's worship service is not about you or me. Singing these songs is not about you or me at all. It's not about what it does for us or how it makes us feel or I'm having a bad week and I really just want to have a good song to get me out of this rut. Worship is an opportunity for us to recognize God's position. 
It's not even to practice for a future eternity of worship. This is not, don't ever get the idea that this is a, this is a practice session for heaven. No, it's not. It's an opportunity for you to say, in this moment, I am here to give praise to the most worthy being in the universe. Talk about a shot to our pride. That's what we're called to do right here and right now. So I invite you to ask yourself, is my worship of God more like going to a concert or a movie? You sit back and, I like that part, like that. Uh, That was sketchy. Or do we come in and say, I am here to worship God. The whole time, every part, it's about worshiping this creator. Today, let today's invitation be to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I have made you so small in my eyes. I've had the audacity to think that I could figure you out. I've inflated view of myself. I need to see you magnified. You're seated. You're holy. You're eternal. You're creator. And you're so much more. If you're a parent, me as a parent, I'm worried sometimes that the only image of God that I give to my kids is that he's loving. God is loving. Just He's loving. He's loving. And that is absolutely true, and we should celebrate that. Absolutely. But let's not try to teach our kids that he's holy, he's omniscient, he's eternal, he's incomprehensible. And to that end, I just want to recommend two books. Um, These are books made by a Christian philosopher and apologist, William uh, Lane Craig. Uh, And he's got a 12-part series where he expounds on the attributes of God. And it's the attributes of God for kids. Um, so God is everywhere, God is forever, and he expounds on these. You will read these books and go, oh my gosh, this is just powerful. So I just encourage you with that. How do we teach our kids that God is more than just one attribute in isolation? Moving on to our second point. In worship, we remember Jesus is the only one who is worthy. Go ahead and grab your uh, Bibles or your phones, and let's read again verses 1 through 4 in chapter 5. I'm reading ESV. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. We worship Jesus, the only one, because he has conquered. So we just finished describing this amazing, holy, majestic, powerful, incomprehensible God. And now we're reading this part here, and there's this talk about a scroll. So there's much debate about this scroll and what's written on both sides and what could be written, but generally that scroll is regarded as a title deed to the earth. Okay, So when you purchase a home, right, Pete, you get a deed, you get a title, you own it. When you purchase a car, you get pulled over, the cop asks you for your license and registration, which is your title to the car. So the one seated on the throne has the title deed to the earth. And it's saying no one has the authority or power or audacity to approach the the throne and get the scroll. It says that John starts weeping. That word, that weeping, that use of the word weeping is only a couple times. One time it's used when Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. It's the same word. It's this kind of uncontrollable sobbing. You're just beside yourself. What John wants and why he's weeping is that he wants God's rule and reign over the earth. He wants someone to open the scroll and to signify this all belongs to God. Judgment, the earth, everything belongs to God. 
and no one is found worthy. So you might wonder, why doesn't God just leave him? He's worthy, isn't he? Hold that question for a minute. Look at verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and seven seals. Someone is found who can take that title deed to the earth. And then let's look at verse 6. So, right, it, it said, There was a lion, a tribe of Judah. Look at verse 6. It says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So we talk, there's a declaration that a lion is coming, but then what happens? Who shows up? A lamb. And John sees this lamb. It was no ordinary lamb. It was standing. It was a standing lamb. Is the imagery shocking you at this moment? It was a standing lamb. And then the other thing about it, it was alive as though it had looked like it had been slain. It had seven horns, which actually represent perfect strength and power. And it had seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Whenever you see seven spirits of God, it represents that it has God's Holy Spirit. And the Lamb takes the scroll from God in verse 7. God could have opened the scroll. But you see, before God brings his reign to the earth, he's going to have to bring judgment. And what we see is that before he opens judgment upon the earth, he waits for a savior. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist looks at Jesus approaching to be baptized and exclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's no hope for humanity if there's no mediator between God There's no hope for us if God opens the scroll. There's a lot of times, and I'm sure you've heard people say, well, if God would just show up right now, I'd believe that he exists. No, 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 no. You don't want God to show up now. Because if he shows up, it's judgment. Or maybe you, when you see something so horrific on TV or in life, you say, God, Show up now. Take care of this. Where are you? Why are you just sitting around? No. We should pause. Because when we say God show up, he's going to show up and bring judgment. When God shows up, the play is done. When God shows up, everything is taken down. So what we need before God shows up is a mediator, Jesus Christ. Before Jesus could be that victorious lion that we read about, he had to be, for you and me, the sacrificial lamb. Otherwise, there's no way. By his death and resurrection, he has trampled death, and he is the conqueror. It says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 24-26. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When Jesus, our sacrificial lamb, who becomes the lion, takes the scroll, the throne room worship shifts focus. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, And when he had taken the scroll, The four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. 
Now those living creatures and elders who are worshiping God are now worshiping Jesus, the Lamb. And it's not just the living creatures and elders who worship Jesus. Look at verse uh, verse, uh, verse 11. I looked and I heard around the throne and living creatures and elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So the elders worship Jesus. The creatures worship Jesus. The angels worship Jesus. And if that wasn't enough, it says every creature in verse 13, on earth, in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, say, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When we gather for worship, we remember we have a hope. John stopped crying when a Savior showed up. We have a conqueror. He has conquered in death. He has conquered death and now receives worship. I love this worship song. The third verse of this song in Christ alone says this. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Jesus, the only one who is worthy, is worthy because he's ransomed people for God. That's one of the things that's said in verse uh, 9. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You know, there's several pictures of sin in the Bible. Sin has different imagery in the Bible. Um, One of the images of sin is treason. So you've got this wanted sign. You're a lawbreaker. You've rebelled against a king. There's another imagery of sin in the Bible which is like spiritual adultery. You had a faithful husband and you've committed adultery with him, uh, against him. Another picture of sin is sin is debt. Every day you and I are accumulating debt against a holy God. But another image of sin is slavery. And it says here that Christ has ransomed people for God. In Romans 7.14, it says that we were sold under sin. So we worship God and we worship Jesus because what he has done is something like a purchase. There we were on the auction block, slaves to sin. And he came in and bought us. No one else, no one else could afford the price to pay for us. But here is Jesus buying us back. You know, sometimes we lose the joy and amazement of worship when we forget that sin is all of these pictures. We were stained, filthy, adulterous, hopeless, lawbreakers, and yet we had a Savior who ransomed us back. I think a lot of times when we come into worship, our worship is tempered or nulled by the fact that we think that in the end of the day, we start falsely thinking that Christianity is a moral improvement program. It's about becoming better. If I would just become better, it's all right. God, I'm sorry, I, you know, I, I'm trying my best. I have a few failures each day or I had a good week. You know, I only committed X, Y, and Z sins. And I know God will forgive me for that. But if we don't realize sin is all of these things, and we take that into account, we won't come into worship recognizing that he is worthy. We worship Jesus because he's ransomed us and paid a debt we could not pay. Anyone know what the price was? Sorry if that. Anyone know what the price was? 
his own life. That's what it costs to have you and me in these seats. Jesus, the only one who is worthy, has made us into a kingdom of priests and to our God. Last part here. Take a look at Revelation 5.10. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Remember how we started this sermon, uh, talking about Moses and the Exodus and the Israelites being taken? So I want to flash back in Exodus 19. God is leading the Israelites. Moses is in charge. He's leading them. God says, plant here by this mountain. The mountain was Sinai. The Israelites are at the bottom. And God says, come up here. I want to tell you some amazing things, some plans that I have for this group of people. This is what God says in Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you will, go tell, Moses, go tell the Israelites this. If you will obey, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And all of these pages, since Exodus 19, are proof after proof after proof of how they and we could not live up to that covenant. We just couldn't do it until Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, met the requirements that God set on that mountain all those years back and made us into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Notice, he didn't just pay the debt so and just consider us useless, right? We said that sin is like a, it's like an auction block. He didn't just buy us, take us up to heaven and go, here, Lord, here's those losers, here's those dummies, I rescued them, I'm going back for more. He actually called us to be a kingdom of priests who back in that day were the connection between other people and God. And the charge for you and me today, as we worship, as we sing these songs, let it be a reminder. You're not supposed to be a bench warmer. This is not a spectator sport. We're gathering as we worship and remembering, Jesus, you ransomed me. You allowed me to be part of your kingdom, a priest charged to serve you and to bring you to this world. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You're a chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In just a couple minutes, we're going to go into a time of prayer. And I would just invite you to just ask yourself this morning, God, what corner of the earth are you calling me? Where do you want me to serve you as your royal priest? Uh, the first song of the Bible it's actually sung by Moses after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and it's found in Exodus 15 the last song of the Bible is found in Revelation 19 at the wedding feast of the Lamb so when you and I gather for worship we echo the sentiments sung in that first song the echo of the sentiments sung in the last song. We echo the sentiments sung in every song in between. And we sing, we echo those sentiments for every new song. Here are those sentiments. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You have led your steadfast love in the people whom you have redeemed. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And the last song of the Bible. Hallelujah. For the Lord, our, the God Almighty, reigns. Everyone is a worshiper. And one day, 
book of Revelation testifies that you will worship God or Satan. So this morning, we gather to celebrate God on the throne, seated, holy, the creator. But we don't just celebrate that because without, if there's no mediator in between that, we have no hope. But we also celebrate Jesus, the only one who's worthy of worship because he's conquered, he's ransomed, and he's made us a kingdom of priests. Our time in worship, harvest, is not about us. It's not about you or me. It's not about our problems or issues. It's about giving worship to the God who deserves it. So can we read um, this, the last declaration in Revelation 5? Can we read this together? Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Amen. Let's pray. As you take a moment to pray, let's just take a moment and just pause before God one who is seated on the throne, and let's come before him and just confess. If we've come uh, in a way that's, during our times of worship, that's uh, irreverent or uh, very lax, let's remember who he is, and let's ask and say, God, open my eyes to who you are. Help me to remember that you're seated, you're holy, you're creator, you're so many more, more things. Let's take a minute to just talk to the Lord. And why don't we also take a minute thanking God for Jesus, our mediator, the one who made a way for us. Let's come before him and confess, Lord, you know, I've really started to see our faith is just a moral improvement program, that all you want from me is just to be better, to do less bad things. And help me to see this morning that you've done so much more. You've bought me off the auction block. You've released my chains. You've canceled my debt. You've forgiven me of my adultery. You've cleansed me from the stain of sin. There is nothing that I could have done to ever consider coming close to you. So help me to worship you. Let's, let's pray and ask God to remind us of his provision for us in Jesus. And let's celebrate our Savior. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.